Okay, well, we're going to get started. Um, welcome to another year of Sunday School. It's hard to believe that we've been doing Sunday School. Uh, we, our first year of Sunday School was in 2004. So what is that? This is uh, our 11th year? Is that right? 2004, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. Okay, I'll trust you. Your math is better than mine. I was humanities. That's why I'm a minister. Uh, so 11th year in Sunday school, that's really something. We've covered a lot in, in those years, and there's so much. We, we, we try to use Sunday school as an opportunity to advance uh, some of our education of theology, uh, address particular subjects that really wouldn't fit as a sermon. You know, the, the sermon should be an exposition of God's Word, but there's so much to talk about. And what we thought about, what we as the consistory uh, thought we would try to do is each year give the congregation a steady diet of certain subjects. So we will do uh, four quarters, so to speak. They won't be in identical length. It'll depend from year to year. But uh, one quarter will be on uh, some theology or Christian doctrine, uh, as we still need to learn Christian doctrine, grow in our understanding of that. Uh, we'll do a quarter on apologetics, addressing some topic, whether that is, like we did the year before, how to defend the resurrection of Christ and the validity of the scriptures, or understanding Islam, or understanding uh, the New Age, whatever. Uh, a quarter on the family, addressing some issue uh, that the Bible addresses uh, concerning uh, the family, whether that's parenting or marriage or uh, a whole host of ethical questions. And then a quarter on church history um, so we can learn the story of the church. Now, I always seem to manage to get church history in since it's near and dear to my heart. Uh, I was giddy with excitement when they appointed me to be the church history examiner at Classus uh, because it's just my favorite subject and it's easy compared to the other ones. Uh, but uh, we want to educate others. We, want, we need to be educated in the history of the church. I mean, I grew up uh, thinking there was the apostles, and then there was the church I belonged to. Uh, there was sort of a whole gap of maybe 2,000 years, and a lot has happened, and so we need to be educated in those things. And you, we can't hear sermons on, on, we shouldn't hear sermons on those. Again, sermons are to be expositions of God's word. So that's the purpose of Sunday school. So our first series that we will do is a series on the two natures of Christ. So we're going to be talking about Christology. And again, we might hear that and think, ah, I've heard all this before. That's the title of the series, and the subtitle is, So What? Why does it matter? Who cares if we can distinguish the two natures of Christ? And what do we need to know about the two natures of Christ? Um, very important subject for us as Christians. Because if we get this wrong, we actually end up in a different religion. And, you know, we can't say, well, you know, I don't know his heart, uh, you know, but he doesn't, he doesn't conf you know, his religion doesn't confess Jesus to be God or, uh, we can't say that. Uh, 
religion is something that it has a body of doctrine. It is, there is, uh, every religion has something that it believes. And if we don't believe that Christ is fully God and fully man, uh, whatever it is, it's not Christianity. It's not Christianity. It's a different religion. And it doesn't matter how nice the person is, how much we may agree with them on social issues, it is not Christianity. It is something other than Christian, very other than Christianity. In fact, it's something that John calls in 1 John, anybody know? Antichrist. Antichrist. And so we don't want that. So to understand the two natures of, of Christ is definitely important. It also helps us understanding these natures, helps us uh, grow in our love for the Lord, our appreciation for his word, our appreciation for our Savior, what it is he's accomplished. And there's a lot that the history of the church can teach us about how to read God's word and understand this thing that's very difficult that Christ is one person with two natures. I mean, how do you, how do you get your mind around that? And the, the church has struggled to get its mind around that. Uh, it, it's fair to say that that's been one of the, the biggest struggles of the church throughout the histories of the church is to understand how this, this, this mystical union of Jesus Christ being fully God, fully man, and yet one person. And so we're going to explore that over the next, uh, today and over the next five weeks. Uh, today we want to look at the fact that Jesus is God. Next week we're going to look at the fact that Jesus is man. Now I tend to think that um, evangelical Christians do uh, pay a lot of homage to this, but tend to get the other one uh, wrong. And we may have inherited that if we've come out of that tradition. Uh, maybe we don't think of Jesus as being as human as he really is. And then later, we're going to explore, on, after Jesus is man, uh, how Jesus is one person. Then we'll explore how he is two natures, and then what some of that means. And hopefully this will be helpful for us. I want to keep this as practical as possible, and we'll go into... Uh, too much detail uh, in terms of uh, history and uh, philosophical movements, but I want to try to keep it and make it as helpful as possible for all of us. So let's start with the fact that uh, if if we were going to to show someone what the Bible says with regard to Christ's divinity, when we say his divinity, we mean that his godness that he is fully God. Um, let's start with the, how do we know that? Where in the Bible would we go to show a friend that Jesus is, in fact, God? That's, that's quite a huge claim, that this person who was born once upon a time is also God. How can that be? Because God can't be born. Neither can God die, and yet we sing, as we sing a few weeks ago, that thou my God hast, but God can't die. So how can we say that? And is Mary the mother of God, or just the mother of Jesus? 
Well, and it's not, just to, it's not just to know the answers, but to know why. Because it really helps us. It really helps us understand. We're going to explore all that. But where would we go in the Bible? Let's just think of a few helpful passages. Let's just start there. Where do we go in the Bible? Where does the Bible make the claim that Jesus is God? Let's just think of some passages. Don? John 1, okay? So you have your Bible with you. This is Christian education time. So you, you can't just sit there and smile and drink your coffee. You have to open your Bible because this is class. And uh, turn with me to John 1. And if you... I'm not looking at anyone. If you uh, forgot your Bible, then just grab a pew Bible. But um, I think it's helpful for us to look at the Word while we are um, hearing these things, so that we'll remember them. All right, John 1. John 1. So this is how uh, John opens up his gospel. It's very similar. It sounds very similar to the way the book of Genesis uh, begins. In the beginning, so Genesis, in the beginning, was God. Well, here you have, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Okay, then look down to verse 14. And the Word, okay, who is God, He's with God and He is God, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So right at the beginning of John's Gospel, he is revealing the two natures of Christ. That the Word, Christ, is God, and that the Word became flesh, and we have seen His glory. And this is important. Did the Father become flesh? It's not a trick question. No. Does the Father have a body? Are you going to see the Father in heaven? There's an interesting question. Sometimes I think we have that idea. I remember one of my professors saying, uh, you know, when you die and go to heaven, you're not going to give Jesus a high five and say, hey, good job on the cross, and go running to the Father and go hug him. Uh, Because God is spirit and does not have a body like men. Uh, It's the Son that became flesh. And when we say that we will see God face to face, well, the only person in the Godhead who has a face is Jesus. And he has a real face. He has a particular skin tone and eye color. And we don't know what that is, and we shouldn't speculate with pictures. Uh, uh, We have to wait until that beatific vision to see the Lord Jesus. So it's the Word that became flesh. So right off the bat, John is dealing with these two natures of Christ. And that is a great passage. That's a great passage to go to, is the Gospel of John. Right off the bat, he is God. Give me another one. Okay, 10.30. Yeah, over 10.30. I and the Father are one. He's speaking of the oneness of God. So yeah, God is one in essence, and yet three in person. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Uh, They are all fully God, and yet they are all distinct persons uh, that have relations with uh, others. Let me show you another one in John. This one is one of my favorites. Turn over to John 17. This one really did it for me. Because there was a period when I was a young Christian uh, when those lovely people would show up on Saturday mornings 
and tell me Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons, and we'd begin to get into these dialogues where I got turned around a little bit uh, by uh, you know, trying to understand the deity of Christ, and they were throwing a lot of things at me. And you know, as a young Christian, I wasn't able to grapple with all of it. And it wasn't just enough to say, well, I don't know, I just confess the Nicene Creed and have implicit faith in the Creed. I mean, we need to know what we believe and why, right? And this was actually one of the most helpful passages in Scripture for me. Where in his high priestly prayer, this is the night before his crucifixion, Jesus has this wonderful prayer, and he says, Father, the hour has come. Uh, Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Okay? And then look at verse 5. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Now, God does not share his glory with anyone. How do we know that? Turn over to Isaiah. Turn over to Isaiah. There's several passages in Isaiah that are very helpful. Beginning with Isaiah 42, verse 8. You could even maybe write in the margin of John 17, 5, Isaiah 42, 8. And in the margin of Isaiah 42, 8, John 17, 5. Listen to this. I am the Lord. Now, this is very important to get. Notice your English Bible there, since you have your Bible open. Uh, Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. I know you've heard me mention this before, but it's, this is really important to get. That's Yahweh. This is the God who revealed himself at the burning bush. Okay, the only God, the Lord. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other. Now, what did Jesus just say? Glorify me with that glory that I had with you before the world existed. So Jesus is either lying, or he's crazy, or he's telling the truth. Those are your only options. What is not an option is to say, well, Jesus is the Savior, but um, you know, we misunderstood him there. Or some, he's either lying, or he's crazy, or he is the Lord, with whom the Father shared his glory before the world existed. In fact, Isaiah's got these, if you go on in Isaiah, look at chapter 43, verse 11. I, I am the Lord, and besides me, there is no Savior. And so think of all the times that Jesus is called the Savior. Look at Isaiah 44, verse 6. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. What is Jesus called in the book of Revelation? Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. Okay? And uh, Isaiah 45, verse 21, the end there. Isaiah 45, verse 21, And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none besides me. Isaiah 46, verse 9, For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. So over and over again, we keep going. The Old Testament 
reveals uh, the Lord as being the only God, the only Savior, the first and the last, and uh, the one who does not share his glory. And so when Christ comes on the scene, that is, the Son made flesh, the Word made flesh, he begins to attribute for himself things that were only attributed to Yahweh in the Old Testament. And again, your only options are he's crazy or he's lying or he is who he says he is. Those are your only options. But we can't say, well, Jesus was a great man. He's a great man we should all try to follow. A great man doesn't lie. A great man isn't crazy about uh, his own identity. He's not somebody you want to follow or teach your kids about as a great example if he was lying or he was crazy. But if he's the Lord, if he is who he says he was, and I'm banking my salvation on that, as, as Rod Rosenblatt says, I got all the blue chips on Jesus. I've got everything on, you know, red while it's spinning. And, I, and I'm going with the testimony of the apostles. That's what I'm going with. Uh, because of passages like these. So the Bible says Jesus is God. Uh, a couple others that I like. 858 is good too. He says, I am. Um, but uh, the, the one I was thinking of is uh, Romans 9. It's just very flat out. Romans 9, 5. These are go-to passages, guys, that all of us should know. It really, these are go-to. You're being equipped right now. If you ever say, you know, like, ah, I wish I was more equipped, you're being equipped right now. These are the passages that you want. So Romans 9.5. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, Paul's talking about Israel, according to the flesh is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. I believe they say he drops the microphone and walks out, right? Uh, yeah, he's God over all. Game over. Full stop. And there's another one. In fact, this one I remember giving to a lovely couple, Jehovah's Witness, who came over to my house maybe two or three times, an older couple. And this one really bothered the husband. Uh, uh, Titus 2.13. This is a, a great passage. And grammatically, it can only work to uh, attribute the deity to Christ. Uh, uh, Titus 2.13. We're waiting for our blessed hope. What is our, what is our blessed hope? It's the perfect president of the United States, tax cut, Christ's return. That's our blessed hope. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior. Our great God and Savior. Our great God and Savior. The appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. God gave himself for us. So the same God that requires righteousness from us provided that righteousness in Jesus Christ. God became flesh. This is why we're Christians. This is why we're Christians. Because something happened. An event happened. Not, not an event in my heart. Not an experience or a moment where I just thought this is the best way to live. Something happened in history. The Creator became flesh. The Word became flesh. And He was seen by many. And as, Paul, as John says in his first epistle, that which we have seen and heard and handled, 
that is which we declare to you. Him we proclaim, Paul says. The Word became flesh, and He is revealed as God. That's what the Bible says. So good passages to remember. John 1, 1 and 14. John 17, connected with those passages from Isaiah. Romans 9, 5. Titus 2, 13. That's a lot in your arsenal. And it's not just to debate with uh, the modern-day Arians. We'll talk about that in a minute, who the modern-day Arians are. No, not the, you know, biker gang in prison for uh, wanting white supremacy, but uh, Arians after Arius, who said that Jesus was not God. Uh, this, heres- this false teaching heresy has been around for a long time. It's not just so that we can do debate with people. It's so that also we can be assured of the truth. Now, why is it necessary? Okay, so we know the Bible reveals Jesus as God. Okay, so what? So what? Couldn't God have saved us through a perfect man that wasn't God? Why is it necessary that the Savior be God? Is it necessary? Okay. That would be the correct answer. And I think everybody probably agrees with that, but why? Probably wouldn't be able to, right, Dan? I think you're on the right track. I think you're on the right track, right. Yeah, the Heidelberg Catechism actually uh, addresses this, and, and what Dan said is, is correct. If he, if he was only a man, would he have been able to bear the wrath of God? So this is where uh, it's helpful for us to uh, hear how the Heidelberg Catechism discusses it. Um, turn with me in the Heidelberg Catechism, so in the Psalter Hymnal. Turn with me to, to Lord's Day uh, 5 and 6, pages 12 and 13 on the, in the back of the Psalter Hymnal. This, this is really good stuff. So this is the beginning of the grace section. Okay, so it helps us see that Christ is the mediator we need. Um, Question 15, what kind of mediator and deliverer should we look for? He must be, answer, he must be truly human and truly righteous, yet more powerful than all creatures. That is, he must also be true God. Okay. Question 16, why must he be truly human and truly righteous? We'll talk about that next week. Question 17, why must he also be true God? Answer, so that by the power of his divinity, he might bear the weight of God's anger in his humanity and earn for us and restore to us righteousness and life. And it it, uh, it references there uh, a few passages. In other words, as Dan had rightly pointed out, if he's not divine, if he's not God, how could he bear the, the wrath of God? How could he bear the weight of God's justice and judgment? Uh, the, the God who demands righteousness from us has to also provide that righteousness because we can't, we can't produce it ourselves. And the God to whom we owe a debt that we cannot pay, he's the only one that can pay that debt. 
and that, and that can satisfy that justice. I mean, and it's, the, it's the greatest love story ever. It's the, it's the greatest uh, revelation ever that God took on our nature to reconcile us to himself. Now, of course, there's a distinction within the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's the Son that took on that nature, not the Holy Spirit, not the Father, the Son, and the Son always has that nature. He has that nature right now. That's really important for us to remember. You know, when I was a kid growing up, I thought, okay, Jesus came down here, he, or the Son came down here, became Jesus, he lived for 33 and a half years, and then he rose again from the dead, and he's kind of like out of his human body, and so, all right, so it was 33 years. You know, it'd be like, uh, uh, you know, uh, you going to a planet to save a bunch of chihuahuas, and you have to become a chihuahua for 33 years. But then you're not going to be a chihuahua forever. You go back to your normal state. So no big deal, right? But what if you had to stay a chihuahua for all eternity? Now that's a sacrifice. I hate chihuahuas. No, no offense. Just, they're my least favorite dog in the world. No offense. I know I'm offending somebody, but I'm pretty sure they're a result of the fall. No, I come on. <laughs> kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I love your chihuahua. And so does my pit bull. He'd love to make a chew toy out of him. So, no, kidding. Uh, the, uh, no, it's, but if we think about that kind of analogy, you get the idea that, of what uh, the sacrifice that Jesus has made, that God became human, human nature, took on flesh for all of eternity. Huge sacrifice. God himself did that. So he's revealed as God. It's necessary for him to be God. Now, how has the church understood that? Has the church always understood uh, Jesus to be God. Well, one thing you find as you, um, as you begin to think about the possibilities of the two natures of Christ, you come up with ideas that kind of work in your own mind. You know, how can that be? And oftentimes, you'll find that the, the idea you've come up with, this has happened to me a couple times early in my Christian life, uh, was actually a condemned heresy. <laughs> you know, oh, that's called Apollinarianism, or that's called Nestorianism. That was, that was condemned at the you know, Second Ecumenical Council in Constantinople in 381. Well, okay, uh, I guess that's not the right way to think of the two natures. Okay, it's helpful to know those things, again, lest we go off track and end up out of Christianity. So this is not dry and dusty stuff. This is the stuff of salvation. And uh, one of the first heresies to arise, when I say heresy, that, is, that means false teaching, some false teaching that was condemned by the church as being uh, not just inaccurate, but actually something false taught from God's word. One of the first false teachings was uh, by this guy named Arius. This is what we're talking about with Arianism. Arius. And, uh, you know, those lovely people uh, who are really sweet oftentimes, you know, from the Kingdom Hall or from um, the Church of Latter-day Saints, um, they are the theological great-grandkids of Arius. They are not Christians. They are not Christians. And if I say, well, you say, well, you know, but you don't know his heart. Well, of course I don't know his heart, but I know his faith. And his faith is revealed in a body of doctrine. 
And if he confesses that faith, he confesses something other than Christianity. And so this is really important for us to, to get and to grasp. Uh, Arius was a pastor once upon a time, uh, lived uh, 250 to 336. Uh, he was from Alexandria. Well, he studied at Antioch, uh, but he was a pastor in Alexandria, Egypt. And uh, very powerful preacher with a lot of popularity. Just because you are a powerful preacher or you're popular or you have a big church doesn't mean you're right. Um, And this fellow, he came up with the idea that the Son must not have been eternal. That he must have been a a, a creation of God. Uh, maybe, Maybe similar in substance, but certainly not the same in substance, but he was a creature whom the Father had formed out of nothing. Arius said, even if he is called God, he is not God truly, but by participation in grace only. And as a creature, he said, the Son must not have had a beginning. In fact, Arius had a, uh, a saying, there was when he was not. In other words, there was a time when the sun did not exist. And uh, according to church historians, there was uh, even a, a jingle, a song, that people had uh, sung. Uh, a little, you know, little praise song that uh, said that he was when he was not. And so it became popular. It spread, this idea. And for a lot of people, um, that made sense. Because after all, how can God be human, Right? Uh, how, how can a human, like Jesus of Nazareth, really be God? Uh, there's, there, that's too confounding. We can't get our minds around that. There's too many difficulties. And so his teaching spread. And he had a few other uh, uh, points to his, his doctrine that, uh, that I won't go into necessarily but, uh, or in, in any detail, but he, he did say that that Christ, like other creatures, was alien from and utterly dissimilar to the Father's essence and individual being. He said, The Father remains ineffable to the Son, and the Word can neither see nor know the Father perfectly and accurately, but what He knows and sees, He knows and sees proportionately to His capacity, just as our knowledge is adapted to our powers. That was a quote from Arius. Well, this, this led to a huge controversy. And uh, the controversy was, uh, we can say, ruled on. It wasn't completely eradicated because the controversy is still going on today uh, when you have people knocking at your door uh, and they're 18 years old and they have a little badge that says elder. Uh, that was a joke. Um, the, the, this controversy still continues to this day but uh, the church ruled on it when? Anybody know? Yeah, 325 at the Council of Nicaea. Nicaea is in modern day Turkey, 325 AD. And this is actually what's called the first, the first ecumenical council. Ecumenical, meaning both East and West, were there. Ever since the split, the Great Schism, 
in 1054, between the East and the West, there have been no more ecumenical councils. But uh, there are some important ones, and they, they help us with our understanding of Jesus. And so the first ecumenical council was the Council of Nicaea, called by the Emperor Constantine. And you had about 220 bishops arrive in Nicaea, um, many of whom had lived through the, the horrible persecutions of uh, previous emperors. Uh, but now, uh, with Constantine uh, giving favorable status to uh, Christianity, uh, it was a whole, it was a game changer. It was different. So you have the emperor calling this council. They, they come and they, they, short, long story made short, they uh, look at Arius's teaching from Scripture, and there's quite a bit of debate. Uh, is, Jesus, is Jesus, is the Son, uh, the same substance as the Father? Or is he similar substance? Or is he altogether different? And uh, again, long story made short, uh, through the work of those men, and also through the work of uh, the champion, uh, Athanasius, who defended uh, the deity of Christ and the two natures of Christ, um, the ultimate result was the creed uh, that was produced from the Council of Nicaea. Now, there's been a few edits since then. We can talk about that later. Actually, an edit that led later to the split between the East and the West in 1054. But essentially, the creed that we confess is the, the product of the Council of Nicaea. And this, this is why it's important for us to know those creeds. If we're in a church where we never confess those creeds, uh, we, open, we expose ourselves to all kinds of heresy. And if we don't confess that creed, we can't rightly call ourselves Christian. Now, it's one thing for someone to come to Jesus Christ by faith and have never heard the Nicene Creed. That's one thing. And say, I don't know. I don't know anything. I just know once I was blind, now I see, like the man in John 9. And they know they're a sinner and they're confessing faith in Christ. But it's another thing to reject the Nicene Creed or to be part of a church or a religion that rejects the Nicene Creed. And that's precisely what, uh, what Mormonism does today. And, you know, and, and so as evangelicals get uh, warm and fuzzy with Mormons in the political sphere, we need to be very careful. We need to be very careful. We saw this with Mitt Romney when he, you know, you have this conservative that many Christians rallied around, but that doesn't mean he's our brother in the Lord. We have to be careful because he confesses something different. About, he's, it's a different Christ, a different mediator. And when Glenn Beck comes on, he calls everybody to pray. Um, we can't pray with him. It's not because we're mean and nasty. It's, you can no more pray with Glenn Beck than you could pray with a Muslim. Because both deny Christ. They both deny that Christ is deity. It doesn't matter if you line up with every... You might line up, you might line up with a, uh, politically with a lot of things that a Muslim does. It doesn't mean you embrace his faith. And the same is true with uh, the Mormon. Wonderful person. And now maybe we know a Mormon who, they just, they're confused. They don't know. Just like a Catholic, they're confused. They don't know about justification. Or it could be... Uh, a lot of people, you might even meet a Muslim who's confused, doesn't even know his own religion. There's millions of those. Okay, we still, of course, need to bring that person to Christ. 
But we can't call the person our brother just because they have a Bible and a smile. That's important. We need to know who it is we are confessing. Because Christianity is a revealed faith that we believe. It's first and foremost a message to be believed, not an experience that we have. The born-again experience is not what unites us. A common faith that we confess is what unites us. And that is what the ancient creeds help us do, is confess the same thing. In fact, this is what Paul is getting at in many places, but uh, particularly in his uh, letter to the Ephesians, when he, or uh, to the Philippians, when he says, um, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the culture wars, for our favorite hot topic politically. No, he doesn't say that. He doesn't say that anywhere in his letters. Nowhere. He says, for the faith of the gospel. Striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And we do that when we, when we confess the truth about Jesus, the one who is revealed as God, the only one who can save, and the one to whom we look as our mediator, the God-man. So Jesus is God. That is orthodox Christianity. And any denial of that is not Christianity. Any questions? Either I'm incredibly clear or incredibly intimidating. So, what is it? Yeah, the firstborn. Right. Right. Uh, so, doesn't that mean that, that uh, he's the firstborn of all creation? Does that mean that he had a beginning? Right. The image of the invisible God. You've got to remember that. So the Son, in his divinity, is invisible. The Son, in his divinity, is omnipresent, everywhere, is immense, fills all things. Uh, Christ, in his humanity, or we're going to say the Son in his humanity, his other nature, uh, is finite. can only be in one place at one time. Now, this is interesting. This, this really gets into a lot of things. He's the image. Christ, in his humanity, is the image of the invisible God. And he's the firstborn of all creation. Firstborn has to do not so much there in that passage with, uh, with being born or brought into the world, but rather being first in rank over all things. And what do you have with the resurrection of Christ? He's called the first fruits. He is the, he is the, the first crop that is popped up in a barren field that gives the assurance that the full harvest is yet to come, none of which has come yet. He's the only resurrected man, the only glorified man. When, when, people, when Christians die, they uh, don't receive their bodies yet. Their soul immediately goes to be with the Lord, their conscious state of being. But they are not yet, their, their salvation is not yet complete in the sense that they await 
to be glorified, and so does the whole creation. But with Christ's resurrection and ascension, you essentially have a birthday of the new creation. And in fact, that's why one of the reasons why we celebrate the Lord's Day on the first day of the week, because it's the birthday of the new creation. The, the, one, the, birth, the, 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 the mark uh, of the firstborn of the new creation, the Lord Jesus Christ. So. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah, there are. Yeah, in the Old Testament, there are uh, pre. We say pre-incarnate appearances of the Son. So the sun, many times the Son comes uh, appears on the scene. Not that he, is an, that he is incarnate yet, that's what we say pre-incarnate, but able to assume some temporary identity, whether it's in a vision or it's in uh, real flesh and blood, like Abraham, when he had the three visitors arrive. Um, anytime you find someone worshiping you know, the angel of the Lord or some being, and, the, and that angel or that person... Uh, receives the worship and doesn't rebuke for worshiping, that's often a good indication that this is a, uh, an appearance of the Son who is eternal, who never had a beginning, yet coming into the scene here and there. But it's not until he assumes body and soul in the womb of Mary, conceived by the Holy Spirit, that uh, he dawns our flesh in a redemptive sense. Yeah, David. One more time. Sure, that's easy. Uh, Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons. Those, those are the big ones. And, and any denomination that would... Uh, uh, essentially deny the, the deity of Christ. To, to confess that is to confess that Jesus is not Lord. To confess that is to go outside the bounds of Christianity. So, yeah. Would it still be the same for like open theists who say that God, even though he is God, he does not control our Well, um, denying Christ's deity, I, I don't, I don't, I don't know necessarily. I mean, open theism is a, was an idea. It's not as popular today as it was maybe ten years ago. Would you say that's right, Dr. Glomzer? Um, well, there's still, but not like it was maybe ten, fifteen years ago. It was a real, real popular fad for a while. It was everywhere. Um, but the, open theism is the idea, it's basically just consistent Arminianism. Basically, it's the idea that God doesn't see the future, doesn't know the future. But I don't know necessarily that an open theist theologian would deny the deity of Christ. I mean, maybe in inference, that's what they're doing. But um, uh, with, with the teaching of Arius or the teaching of certain cults, uh, we're talking about an official dogma, a doctrine that, set, that denies the deity of Christ. So.
Mm-hmm. Not necessarily. Yeah, the question is, is if Jesus didn't know certain things in his humanity during his earthly ministry, wouldn't that be a denial of his deity? And no, the, the answer would be no. There, there were certain things that in his humanity um, that he's not aware of fully. I mean, he grew in his understanding of much. He grew. I mean, he didn't, when he comes into the world as a, you know, he's a three-year-old, he doesn't have uh, a full vocabulary yet. He's truly human. So there are things that, uh, and that's mysterious, isn't it? When we talk about the two, how can these two natures be in one person? Fully deity, fully, fully human. Um, but the fact that there are certain things that Jesus may not have been clear about, like when he says, no man knows the day or hour of the return uh, of, of the Son of Man, uh, doesn't necessar- does not mean that he is uh, not divine. It just means that in his humanity, in his human nature, he is fully human and finite even in his understanding. Yeah. See, that's, we have to do justice to his humanity too. We have to do justice to his humanity. He is fully human like the rest of us. He had to grow in his understanding. If he's a sinner. If he's a sinner. Right. Okay. No, no. It's just it's helpful. These are big concepts. These are big concepts. They're big concepts, and they're they're things for us to we get to get our minds around. And that's why it's helpful to go back in history and look at how people who some very smart theologians have gotten it wrong in the past. We can learn from them. We can learn from them. Just like we learn from, you know, in history from all kinds of things. So, all right, we're gonna, we need to stop there, uh, lest the little ones release the kraken and uh, the, the teachers be tied up. And, uh, but hopefully this has been helpful. Next week we're going to talk about Jesus as human. And uh, we'll look at a, another figure from church history who uh, denied that he was fully human. And we'll uh, see how that's helpful for us today. Father in heaven, we do thank you for sending the Son, uh, the one who dawned our flesh, body and soul, and came into this world and did all things perfectly for our sake. We thank you that he bore the weight of your wrath uh, that no man can. Uh, We thank you for the God-man whom we confess, to whom we look, whom we love, and in whom we trust. And we long for his appearing, the appearing of our great God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.